Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Lauren Gabe here. It's June 28th, and you're listening to Under the Bleachers. This will be our second to last episode in season two. We have one more episode for you next Monday, and then we'll be on hiatus for a while. We'll share new content and or revisit old interviews from time to time and be back with new episodes in the fall. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For a discussion of all things queer, she chose the Emmy Awards announcements regarding gendered categories. For our conversation on on all things sports, we're talking about foreign substance inspections. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we'll welcome the very first gay active player in the NFL to our Rainbow family. After that, we're going to share our interview with the Rainbow History Project. First, an update on Team DC. Night Out with the Washington Mystics is tomorrow, June 29th at 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now at mystics.wmba.com backslash pride. On July 10th, we will be celebrating Pride Night Out with Old Glory Rugby. Team DC member clubs, the Washington Renegades and DC Furies will be playing exhibition curtain raiser matches before the start of the game. And DC's different drummers drumline will be providing entertainment. Team DC is selling tickets that offer a 25% discount from regular box office prices. The link can be found on Team DC's Facebook page or contact Matt at teamdc.org for more information. Pride Night Out at the Washington Nationals will be August 17th, and tickets are on sale now. Find the link for tickets on the Team DC website or contact Brent at teamdc.org for groups of 13 or more. United Night Out will be August 28th. Tickets are $30 and can be purchased by emailing brent at teamdc.org. Pride Night Out at the City Open will be August 5th, and ticket information will be available soon. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for more updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC Sports. Laura and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all your favorite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe to Under the Bleachers for all the latest news at the intersection of sports and queer. Now, here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. Okay, for my queer topic this week, the Emmys are going non-binary. Kind of. Last week, the television. <laughs> yeah, it was confusing. Last week, the Television Academy announced that as of the 2021 Emmy Awards season, nominated stars will be able to drop those gendered titles and request that their nomination certificates and statuettes use the gender-neutral term "performer" instead. 
The announcement went on to explain that, quote, no performer category titled actor or actress has ever had a gender requirement for submissions. Seems weird to call them actor and actress then, huh? The statement went on to say, quote, now nominees and winners in any performer category titled actor or actress may request that their nomination certificate and Emmy statuette carry the term performer in place of actor or actress. This all seems a bit odd to me, given that the nominations apparently will still be for gendered categories. So someone somewhere will be deciding what category to assign each nominee to, either actor or actress. Seems still to be pretty gendered. It's great news that if a winner prefers to use the word performer instead of actor or actress, they can get an appropriate statuette. But I'm not sure that the actual problem has been solved as long as people are still being separated into categories that are identified in a specifically gendered way. So Gabe, uh, any thoughts on this move by the Emmys? I mean, I, I still thought it was a little confusing, but I, I guess, I mean, can give them a little applause for trying to, to do something, but it's still kind of weird uh, because the categories are still gendered, right? So yeah, I, I, I like you can just, you know, get it engraved you can get your your trophy engraved differently it's like uh, okay <laughs> right it's just so weird because like they still like if you're a non-binary person <laughs> and you say to them i am neither actor nor actress i would like to be performer and then somebody's like yeah. okay great we nominate you for best actress but we'll call you performer <laughs> if you win like i don't I, does like it it's so bizarre like if I told them I want to be known as performer, will they then nominate me in both categories and will I have two chances to win? I, like, exactly. It, right? That... <laughs> like, it so it, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but, you know, I'm glad that people are making efforts to try to figure these things out. Um, but, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a really confusing line when you started with gendered separation and you know now we just realize that not everybody's on that binary like you kind of have to blow up the entire separation if you want to fix the problem doing it halfway seems to maybe make it worse by creating more confusion i don't know yeah well i think that's the thing they, they, they tried you know they, they were they met well but it's still it just made it more confusing and muddled up because it's okay great exactly <laughs> where, where are you gonna get nominated from what, what category are you gonna you know be in Please nominate me for every performer category that there is. I would like an opportunity <laughs> to win them all. <laughs> I want them all. My performance is going to be amazing. 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 I... <laughs> well, all right. I, I guess, yes, we are not going to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of the Television Academy because they're certainly making efforts here and we like it when people make efforts, but I'm going to give them a gold star for effort and tell them to keep at it. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about the Oscars? <laughs> uh, that's, you know how it is, though, right? Like, they're going to be at least four years behind. Give them time. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to this topic and, yeah. you know, in season seven. Exactly. We'll, we'll talk about the Oscars. <laughs> uh. All right, so yay, Emmys. What's going on in sports? All right, next up in sports this week, MLB has started its new policy of engaging in on-field foreign substances inspections for pitchers. Foreign substances such as pine tar and sunscreen have long been used by pitchers who have insisted it's, it's used simply to aid their grip. The hitters say that the real impact of the foreign substances is to allow pitchers to increase their spin rates. 
currently the league-wide batting average is 236, a record low, and the strikeout rate is a record high, 24.2%. So it's kind of hard to say the pitchers don't have a point. The MLB rulebook bars pitchers from applying foreign substances to baseballs, but officials up until now have done very little to curb the practice. At the beginning of this season, MLB started collecting baseballs to better understand just how big of a problem foreign substances are. MLB collected thousands of baseballs for the first two months of the season, and hundreds were found to have foreign substances on them. And this season, pitchers' spin rates have been spiking. There is simply no denying that this is a prevalent problem and is having a serious impact on the game. So this week, MLB started its new policy of on-field inspections when a pitcher is suspected of using a foreign substance. The new policies include... First, periodic substance checks throughout the game of both starters and relievers, whether or not there's any reason to suspect use of foreign substances. Next, one mandatory check of starting pitchers per game, again, regardless of any cause for suspicion. Also, checks anytime a ball feels, quote, unusually sticky, or when an umpire observes a pitcher going to his glove, hat, belt, or any other part of his uniform or body to retrieve or apply what may be a foreign substance. I have so many problems with that. And the last one, catchers are also being subject to inspections. For punishments, so oh my God, it's hard. It's so hard. Just lob it in softballs. That's uh, what he said. <laughs> In terms of punishments, pitchers will be suspended 10 days with pay if they are caught. With pay. The team will not be able to replace the suspended player on the 26-man roster, and if a player refuses to cooperate with an umpire examination, he is presumed guilty and will be ejected and suspended. Additionally, any non-pitcher who applies a foreign substance to the ball will be subject to suspension, and even if the pitcher isn't the one applying the substance to the ball, the pitcher will also be suspended in addition to the player or personnel that did apply the substance, if a foreign substance is found on the ball. I'm going to see how many times I could say foreign substance on the ball. On Monday, giggle. <laughs> on Monday, the very best pitcher in baseball, Jacob deGrom, became the first pitcher inspected for foreign substances as part of these new enforcement protocols. The umpires were not picking on him. It was a simple matter of scheduling. He was the first pitcher to pitch on Monday, so he was the first pitcher checked. DeGrom's glove, hat, and belt were all checked as he came off the mound following a 1-2-3 first inning. The umpires found nothing unsavory on DeGrom's person or balls, and he was allowed to continue. He was checked again after the fifth inning. Braves lefty Kyle Muller was also inspected after the bottom of the first inning and was clean as well. On Tuesday night, things got a little bit more tense when Nationals ace Max Scherzer was subject to two checks by the umpires through his first three innings pitched. And then Phillies manager Joe Girardi called for a third check in the fourth inning. Scherzer was visibly aggravated and theatrically took off his hat and quickly unbuckled his belt to show he had nothing on him. Pitchers are none too pleased, and it's probably only a matter of time before someone actually pulls their pants down during one of these inspections. That said, so far, no foreign substances have been found, and no pitchers have been disciplined. Uh, so, Gabe, have you seen any of these new inspections, and what do you think is going to be the impact of all this? So, as a seasoned inspector of balls. Um, <laughs> How long were you waiting for that? <laughs> I mean, I see a lot of inspections at the club. 
but not on the field. Um, okay, so uh, I first heard about this story from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and I love the joke that he said, where he's like, you know it's a problem when baseball thinks it's too boring because the pitchers are get, getting so good and uh, they're, they're trying to find a way to like slow down the game or whatever. Because No, what they're um, trying to do is let people hit the ball more. Because honestly, yeah, exactly. like, right, like they don't care how fast the ball, the game is, but like, honestly... The entire across the entire league, the batting average is two thirty six. Like this is lame. <laughs> if this, I mean, anyway, they were talking about like, yeah, people put tar, you know, behind their ears, behind their neck, like in their cap, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's it's kind of crazy because it's like one of those things that kind of like the unwritten rules of baseball. Uh, but well, and the, well, so that's the thing, right? Back in the day, like forever and ever and ever, pitchers have been using pine tar, sunscreen, whatever. Pine tar, yeah. And it certainly had some impact, but the I think the real problem is, right, is like there's been actual scientific advancements where they've created this stuff that they call sticky stuff or whatever the fuck they call it, which is like some new substance that they've created that's like almost like glue and pitchers are using that now. And like, that's a problem, right? Like you're manufacturing yeah. new products for the purpose of um, pitching better. And so- that's that's obviously going five steps too far. So I think MLB is right to like address this. I'm afraid they may be overcorrecting, overcorrecting in the wrong way because I don't know. I heard somebody and I can't remember now, but one of the pitchers giving an interview this week was made the point that he was like, you know, if you're a kid in the stands with your dad and you see this happening and you turn to your dad and you're like, what the hell's going on? What's the dad supposed to say? Oh, they think everybody's cheating, so they're going to make them take their pants off. Like, it, it's not a good look, right? I mean, I'm in. <laughs> it's not a good look to tell a bunch of kids that we assume everybody's a cheater. Everyone's cheating. So and we have yeah, to multiple times again. Yeah, like that sucks. Yeah. So I, they need to find, and I just don't understand why they couldn't have somebody in the dugout doing these inspections. Like, so this is the thing, like, do they inspect after every ball? Does the ump, like, get the ball and, like, check it and throw it back? Or how does this, like, how no, are they going to do this? No, but, like, so, like, right, that's the thing. Like, they mandatorily, once a game, check the pitchers regardless. And then also, I guess, periodically when, you know, they're supposed to check them. And I think it's, like, a surprise inspection, <laughs> Right. But then Surprise, also show me your balls. Let me see. Right. Make sure they're not sticky. Yeah. Put them out. But they don't check the balls. They like check the hat. They check the belt. They check, you know, the glove. They're looking to see where they're storing the substance. I don't even know. This is <laughs> this is wrong. This is all kinds of wrong. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I just I really I think they probably could do this without doing it right on the pitcher's mound. And also, like, it, you go watch these videos online. I'm gonna post one on the show notes of Max Scherzer. But just the booing from the stands while this goes on, like, it's just a miserable look for MLB. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, 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 hopefully, it could be one of these like gentlemen's agreement where like all the pitchers are like, okay, you know, we're not gonna do this, but. Well, again, I mean, I will say so. that every pitcher who pitched this week got checked at least once and nobody was found to have any foreign substances. And that is definitely not the case on a regular week. Right. So it clearly had at least some deterrent effect. And yeah. I think that's a good thing, because honestly, it's not great for baseball if like science is going to help pitchers get better and better and better, because hitting a baseball is already the fucking hardest thing to do in sports. Right. Yeah. So 
you know, it's not going to be that fun of a game anymore. It's just going to become a pitcher's game. Like, and so I, I do think like going back to the days of yore when we only had like the occasional pine tar problem <laughs> would be much better than, uh, than, than what we have now. But I also think you have to find a way to do this a little bit less dramatically and in full show of the entire stadium. So. No, yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with the, the, the point you made where it's like, we're, we're assuming that they're going to cheat. Well, and, and, I, and in all fairness, that is a good assumption because we know that they have been cheating like crazy as evidenced by the fact that they found hundreds of balls there. If you go online and look at some of the balls that MLB collected for the first two, oh, they're like, wait, like they, they, some they of them have like them. visible fingerprints in them because there's yeah. so much stuff on the outside of them. It's wild. So yeah, I mean, they were fucking cheating. So like, yeah, yeah. that's not a bad assumption, but I still think that like, again, we can handle our dirty laundry in the basement, not on the pitcher's mound. Like find a better way of uh, curbing this problem, MLB, because I want more hits, but I also don't want Max Scherzer drop, dropping his pants on this. Uh, I just don't want it. I don't want to see it. I'm sorry, Gabe. I'm sorry. I mean, I do. So I, I you want to, you want him to drop his pants and see his sticky balls? Uh, no sticky balls. No sweaty balls. No sticky no. balls. Okay. <laughs> Keep all your balls clean, please. They have products for that. Right. Balls. Okay, so yes. <laughs> all right. No. Just do better. <laughs> I know. That that was fantastic. Uh all right. speaking of sticky balls, what's going on in uh intersection of sports and queer? You're too much. At the intersection of sports and queer this week, we knew this day was coming, and now we know who our first ever active gay NFL player will be. Sidebar. On ESPN, they kept using the cryon that said actively gay player. <laughs> like, don't think that's exactly what they meant, but it was pretty amazing. Um, all right. Carl Nassib has made history as the first active NFL player to announce that he is gay. On Monday, the 28-year-old defensive lineman with the Las Vegas Raiders came out in a video shared on his Instagram page. In the video, he said, quote, I just think that representation and visibility is so important. I'm going to do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate, and I'm going to start by donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project. Messages of support from NASIB's teammates, colleagues, and the NFL flooded social media, and the league promised to match NASIB's $100,000 donation to the Trevor Project, a nonprofit organization focused on suicide prevention efforts for LGBTQ youth. We are going to have to wait and see how things unfold this season with fans and players in the locker room and on the field before we know if all of this support is real or just for social media. But for now, the signs are very encouraging. So welcome to the family, Carl. Congratulations for taking another step toward living fully as your authentic self. Gabe, were you shocked? What was your reaction when you heard the news? Uh, I wasn't shocked. I was kind of, I mean, I was excited. I was like, hey, finally we have a gay NFL player that's actively gay, <laughs> actively playing. Actively um, yeah, gay. Yeah, I thought it was funny when people were talking about like the, the terminology, what are we going to do? Because obviously there have been, you know, many gay NFL players before. I mean, yes. And I wouldn't say many have come out, but there have been a number that have come out after they retired. And then of course, mm -hmm. Michael Sam came out uh, before the draft, but he didn't end up making an active roster. So, 
Caro will be the first guy actively playing on the field while people know he's gay. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was looking at some of the comments on social media, of course, like when, when CNN posted it or NPR posted it and just, yeah, of course you're going to have the stupid same homophobic comments, but uh, there was a lot of support and I was really happy to see people like taking down, you know, people posting stupid stuff online. And then yeah. there was that joke that like Joy Bear made <laughs> on The View I didn't. I do not watch The View. Shockingly, <laughs> what? Well, as as a View watcher, um, <laughs> yeah, she tried to make this joke, and it, I mean, it was. I thought it was kind of funny, but it was a little offensive. But I mean, it was just a stupid like gay joke, and I'm just like, you can't do that. We can make that, joke, <laughs> but you can't, Joy. Get it right, oh, Joy Behar. Is but, um, no, like I'm. I'm glad. Uh, and I'm glad to see that the NFL is actually taking part of it. Maybe, you know, they yeah. also donated, they, you know, they matched the, the donation to the Trevor Project. People are actually talking about it. And he even said, like, uh, or Carl even said in um, some of the posts that, yeah, you know, I'm not the first one. And also it's just visibility and I want to be seen. And you don't know how this is affecting people, you know, in the middle of the country and other NFL fans and little, you know, gay and queer kids that are out watching now and saying like hey I have there's someone I I can be an athlete and I yeah. can be gay no that's right and I I thought his video was 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 perfect right like he's clearly a little shy he wasn't like looking he didn't really want a big media circus but he knew it was coming um mm -hmm. and he did this little unassuming video instead of like a big marketing campaign I think it was all exactly the right vibe um I think the best part of it for me was seeing um the big names come out right in support of him because like you just know that there's trolls on the internet for sure that was to be expected but i'm i also know without question that there are homophobic people playing in the nfl and that you know that's gonna that could have a big impact on how carl is received in the coming season but if the superstars on your team are out there loudly and proudly supporting carl nassib then you're going to have a hard time you know not getting in line so people like jj watt can't come out in support of him and you know that like what jj watt does the rest of that team will follow so it's like oh, yeah. that's like i think the biggest and best part of all of this um, is seeing that kind of um, groundswell. So I think I, I, it gives me optimism for how well things will go for Carl this year. I'm sure there are going to be bumps on the road along the way, but um, I'm proud of him. I'm happy for him. And, you know, let's go get more queer athletes. I hope that Call this me. does... <laughs> oh my god you know how many people on my social media feed were like posting their stupid status of in a relationship with carl massa but i'm like in your dreams dude in your dreams like just you know just because he's pennsylvania's not that far the fact that he's willing to come out does not mean he's gonna date you dummies <laughs> uh, i thought no. it was cool that uh president biden tweeted out you know congratulations to him and also to uh shikari richardson Yes. The fastest woman in the yeah. world. Oh, by the way. So, okay. You know, I can't help myself. I was this morning uh, scrolling through Twitter, watching videos of Simone Biles at the Olympic trials. Oh, 
unreal this person unreal please go watch her uneven bars routine which isn't even the it's probably her worst of all of her routines her dismount from the uneven bars is one of the most incredible things i've ever seen so congratulations carl nassib and keep being the best of all time simone biles Okay, that's this this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of Things Queer, Things Sports, and Things at the Intersection of Sports and Queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share our interview with the Rainbow History Project. Welcome back. Uh, today we're here with Rob Berger. Rob is the chair of the board of the Rainbow History Project. Hey, Rob, nice to see you. Hey, how's it going? Very good. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to join us. I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about the Rainbow History Project. So let's just dive in with some basics. Can you tell us how and when the Rainbow History Project got formed? Sure. So uh, last year, uh, the Rainbow History Project celebrated our 20th anniversary. We were founded in the fall of the year 2000. And basically a group of people got together uh, to try to figure out how to preserve LGBTQ plus history after uh, they had discovered in the DMV area that kind of work really wasn't taking place. Okay, so what is the mission or the main purpose of the Rainbow History Project? Sure, sure, we do, we we, uh, aim to do three things. Uh, We collect, preserve and promote LGBTQ history. And uh, I'll give you some examples of what what that means, collect, preserve, and promote. Uh, As far as uh, collecting goes, we collect a variety of things. Uh, We have volunteers that go out and interview people and collect oral histories. Uh, We also have a collection of objects and items. We have, you know, traditional things, paper memorabilia, uh, personal papers, organizational papers, photos, We also have some more unusual things in our collection, uh, buttons, t-shirts, and uh, in uh, the DMV over the years, there have been some gay-themed radio and television, public television programs, and we do have copies of some of those as well. So that's sort of the collection angle. Then the the preserving angle goes right along with it. Uh, You know, we're, we're seeking these items. Uh, We're partnered with the D.C. History Center, which is uh, the historical society for uh, the District of Columbia, and they are the repository of the majority of our collection. Um, And they tell us all the time we're one of the most uh, requested collections that they have. So it's nice to be popular. Mm -hmm. Um, We also provide online access to a lot of materials. We have a website, rainbowhistory.org. And on that website, people can find all sorts of information. They can also find uh, uh, scanned copies of various documents or photographs. And they can also take a look at the uh, oral histories that we have and request to listen to one. I think we have about 1400 different items that people can check out on our website. And then the last part, the promoting part, uh, we do a variety of things to promote uh, a knowledge of our history. We have some walking tours, uh, eight different ones around the the city. We put on uh, history panels. We'll we'll put together a panel of people to talk about a particular topic or subject. Uh, We we put on occasional community events. Uh, Every couple of years, we recommend, or we recommend, we recognize what we call the community pioneers, 
which are people uh, who have uh, worked hard and accomplished amazing things within the community. We're going to be doing that again in the fall. We're very excited about that. Um, and we also uh, provide limited assistance to uh, researchers or people in the media that might want to be uh, researching something or writing an article. Okay, well, that is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot. Let me tell you, it keeps me busy. It's like a part-time, full-time job. Awesome. So can you talk a little bit more about the oral interviews? Can anyone submit an interview or how does this work? Sure, sure. There is, there is no uh, requirement uh, for somebody to have their oral history taken. So we have volunteers that, that, that uh, do the interviews. Uh, Pre-pandemic, uh, all this used to be done in person. Now uh, we've been doing oral history interviews by Zoom, like, just like everyone does everything uh, uh, online these days. But uh, there's no specific requirement. Uh, it's not unusual for us to seek out interviews with people who've been around for a while and may have uh, a longer span of life experience to talk about. But we also do interviews uh, with younger people or people uh, that are more in the, the middle age range. We have about, I think, 300 oral histories uh, that have been collected thus far. So I guess historical events to everyday life in D.C., or how's that work? Sure, sure. So for, for, for an oral history interview, if, if I were to give my oral history interview, how it would work was uh, I would maybe talk about my early life. I'm originally from Ohio. Uh, then I would move forward in what happened, you know, in college or, or after uh, could be relationships or other important things, things I was involved with, organizations. I mean, it's, it's basically just an opportunity for people to tell uh, their life story, uh, which, of course, would connect uh, with the community and the community's story. Very cool. Um, <clears throat> aside from collecting individual stories, how do you all collect or organize um, details relating to specific events or um, issues relevant to the community? Sure. So uh, one of the things that I, I meant to mention, but I, I did not, uh, we are an all-volunteer organization. Uh, we currently have 15 members on our board, all-volunteer, and then we have a volunteer corps that assists also with our labors. So I mentioned that because what that means is uh, when people are volunteers, uh, 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 you take the path that the volunteer is interested in taking, you know, so maybe we get a volunteer that's interested in a particular area. And so they may do a collection of oral histories in that area, or maybe you get a couple of volunteers that are interested in a particular topic. So they may organize a history panel uh, based upon that topic and do some of the research necessary to put that together. So uh, it, it depends on uh, the individuals. Uh, some of our volunteers are people who actually uh, yeah, have a background in history. Maybe they were a history major. Maybe they work with some sort of a history-based organization. And then some of our volunteers, like myself, I just love history. So I, I don't have any uh, professional or career connection to it. I just have a great appreciation for it. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, and what are the sort of, can you tell us a little bit about the specific themes of your various walking tours? Sure, sure. We, we have eight total. Um, there's one focused on the African-American community, one focused on uh, women's uh, sites, uh, one focused on Walt Whitman, uh, because he uh, lived in D.C. for 10 years uh, after the Civil War. 
let's see, there's, uh, and then there's a bunch of different neighborhoods. There's DuPont Circle, there's East DuPont, there's Capitol Hill. Oh, there's a drag tour uh, that takes you around to various sites. I don't know if I'm up to eight yet. I may not be able to remember all of them off the top of my head, but uh, that, that should give you a flavor. And, and all of them are available on our website. And while uh, Pre-pandemic, we used to, you know, people could contact us and say, hey, will you take me and my friends on a walking tour? And we would arrange for a uh, tour guide to take them. Uh, these days, what we do is we encourage people to uh, take the tours on their own um, using the brochures on our website. Or occasionally we have organized uh, some virtual tours that we do like through Zoom or another uh, online service. Okay, so... Uh... With the walking tours, what do you think is the most overlooked LGBTQ location in D.C.? All right. So I, I don't think I have a good answer to that question, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I, think it, it, I think it presents two problems. Uh, one is like a, a, a study of history problem, and one is like a, um, a parent not wanting to say they love one child <laughs> better than all the rest. So... Um, I think one of the challenges with, with our history is uh, prior to the 1950s, 1960s, you really have to dig to find it, right? So uh, a lot of people attribute the beginning of you know, uh, gay rights or gay liberation or whatever you wish to call it as happening like in the 50s, 60s areas. That's when people in some of the larger metropolitan areas used to get organized. But as we all know, gay goes all the way back to the beginning of time. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of history uh, that, that goes way back that isn't directly connected to a location in the way that we would traditionally think. You know, the farther you go back in history, you may be talking about, OK, maybe a home where somebody famous lived, you know, somebody of note or maybe a bar. But, you know, that only gets you back so far, you know, bars may be, you know, like the maybe like the 20s or the 30s might be about the time. Uh, and then, in uh, you know, protests, uh, you know, maybe there was a side of a protest in the, the uh, that might have taken place. And then and then it takes you back into uh, other realms where, you know, we all know. Uh, back in the day, uh, there were parks or other locations that were meeting places for LGBTQ people. You know, you, you, you couldn't be public with who you were, so you had to meet covertly. So uh, I, I think the farther you go back, the harder it is to find uh, specific uh, locations. And for me, it's more about the people or the stories uh, when you go way back in history. I, I, um, I can tell you about a story that amazed me. It's not about a location, but it was about a story that I found completely amazing and uh, happened upon it completely by accident that's connected to D.C. So um, I think this year at some point, I don't think it's happened yet, there's going to be a book published about a fellow named William Dorsey who was a resident of DC in the 1800s. Uh, he uh, was a former slave, African-American, and he held drag balls. And in 1888, the police uh, raided one of his parties and arrested a bunch of people. That's how we know about it because it was in the newspaper. And somebody went back in, in the old newspapers and discovered the article and they're writing a book about it. And I don't think the book has been published yet, but I think a lot of times when we think about gay life 
especially the social aspects, we think about more recent time. And, and we forget there were people that were creating a community uh, at great risk to themselves, uh, you know, way back. Yeah, no, that's, ago. that's really interesting. I would love to uh, read that article and get a sense of how they described uh, <laughs> the gathering. <laughs> I think it would be probably pretty interesting. Um, let me ask you from your personal perspective, why do you think it's so important to preserve our local queer history? Sure, sure. I, I, I think a couple of reasons. I think that, uh, as, as gay people, I think one of the ways that our uh, dignity is taken away from us is by denying us our history and our heritage and our story. And I, you know, I think to a large degree, when you think about the span of time, uh, shame has been associated with our community to a large degree. People are very ashamed of being gay and don't want to be out. And that encourages stories not to be preserved in the normal way, you know, uh, and so then you're reliant on the oral history or a diary or something uh, more uh, transient, an article in a newspaper about somebody getting arrested. Um, so I think collecting our story does a couple of things. I think it, it, it ensures uh, our, the, the dignity of us and our history. And I think it also uh, it creates value for uh, people, for young people who may not know uh, uh, from whence the community came. I think that's important too. And then I also think it's important to honor the pioneers, the people that came before. Um, I think there's always going to be a fight to be fought. And, and um, you know, I think uh, there's always work to be done on equality, but I think it's important to recognize the people who came before and, and acted selflessly with courage. Cool. Has the Rainbow History Project collected anything regarding the LGBTQ plus uh, sports community in DC? Yeah, you know what, one of the things that I like about uh, being the chair is if I get to do something like this, then I get to poke around in our collection and see what I can find. So uh, that's exactly what I did. And uh, <laughs> I have a couple of things that I can tell you about that might be interesting. So uh, the first thing that I found, I think I mentioned to you before, uh, one of the things we do is we organize history panels, like somebody will pick a topic and then we'll find the people who can speak on it and have the panel. And back in the day, the panels would be in public, you'd invite people to come and that would be the way that it worked. And we, in, in September of 2002, uh, we, so almost 20 years ago, uh, we did a panel uh, called Gay Sports in DC. Oh. And uh, that panel uh, included uh, Gene Fry, who talked about bowling, which apparently, uh, according uh, to Gene, had its origins about 1981. Uh, Derek Price talked about basketball. Cal Steinmetz talked about softball. Apparently, they were getting organized in gay teams and leagues about 1982. And then Steve Weinberg talked about hockey and its origins in the early 90s. And one of the interesting things, I, I listened to uh, the, the panel, and one of the interesting things to me was how the origin of a lot of this stuff, the story started out, oh, we put an ad in the Blade looking for people. Or we put, or There was an article in the Blade we read, and that's how we got involved. So it, it gave me a greater appreciation of the importance of LGBT media, especially back in the day, yeah. for, as a, a way to organize, you know, because this is pre-internet, right? 
for sure. So, the I ran a I ran a story in the blade opening is something I've heard over and over and over. And <laughs> it's it's really fascinating. I mean, the blade was just such a critical piece of the community. And it still is, but um pre-internet it it was, I think, even more critical for helping people come together. Um that sounds really interesting. I think it's um been 20 years you guys should consider maybe updating that panel and including some women we definitely have some women focused uh, lgbt focused teams here in dc that have been around that long or more so that sounds like something that uh we should work on i i agree with you wholeheartedly one of the other things i'll mention that i found in the collection uh uh Adventuring uh, is an organization I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, one of the things that we have in our collection from Adventuring is uh, one of their newsletters. And the newsletter is from 1989 and it actually uh, is celebrating their 10 year anniversary from when they were founded in 1979. Okay. So, so they're an early organization as well. And that's actually one of the documents that's available on our website. So if anyone, uh, has a, an interest in seeing this newsletter I'm talking about, they can go to our website and find it. The, the third thing that I found was, uh, I took a look at our oral histories because uh, not everyone is a sports star, but a lot of people take pleasure from being involved in sports, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I found a, a, a woman, Barbara Lewis, who came to DC in 1966 to attend George Washington University. Uh, and in 72, uh, she came out as a lesbian. And uh, I'm, I'm just reading from the, the summary here. So, and it says, determined to connect more with the lesbian community, she joined a softball league called the PJMs, named after Peggy Jane Mogley. And it said, was sponsored by Llamas, which was a famous bookstore, craft, and jewelry shop uh, here in DC. So, you know, a lot of different ways that uh, uh, sports and uh, activities uh, being active impact people that are included in our, in our collection. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, as Team DC, we still to this day have member clubs in all of the sports that you've mentioned. Adventuring is still a member club. We still have a basketball league as a member club, a hockey league as a member club softball league. So all of those things are still part of Team DC. And I think we're up to about 40 different LGBT focused um, sports or recreation organizations here in DC. So it, it's undoubtedly a really uh, rich and fascinating part of the history of how people in the community connected over the years. I, I agree with you completely. I've actually uh, volunteered for your organization uh twice several years ago you, you had a uh a uh an event at town where uh people were i, I think it was like objects of clothing were auctioned off i'm, I'm probably yeah. not, not remembering this exactly perfectly i think we called it a fashion, fashion show, show. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i'll leave that one up to you Lauren. I'll, I'll, I'll let you label it but, um, but yeah, and it was a lot of fun and uh, certainly uh, a, a great group of people gathered. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I'm glad to, um, to hear about all that information that you guys have um, stored. And I think we should let our various member clubs know a little bit more about you and see if we can't get more information into your archives for posterity. Um, Absolutely. 
So on that topic, um, how could people get involved with submitting information, artifacts, or documents to the Rainbow History Project? Sure, sure. The, the, the first thing I would recommend people do if they, are, if they are interested in anything or want more information, regardless whether it's donating something, getting involved, or I just, I, I want more information, they can send an email and they can either send it to me, rob at rainbowhistory, all one word, dot org, or they can send it to the, you know, the, the uh, info at rainbowhistory.org uh, uh, address. And then I can uh, connect them with whoever is the correct person. We have an archives committee that, that assists with uh, processing stuff. Obviously, these days, if somebody wants to donate an object or an item, things are a little bit more complicated. How do we pick it up? You know, what's, what's the trade-off? But we have still uh, been collecting things. So the, the first step would be, if you wanted to donate something, the first step would probably be send us an email describing what it is, and then uh, somebody would get back to you to facilitate that. But we're always looking for uh, new materials. And uh, I, I think that uh, uh, one of the things that I learned in looking uh, for sports related items is we probably need some more of them. Right. So uh, I, I would not describe our collection as overflowing with uh, sports related <laughs> history. So uh, Fair enough. Um, is there anything specific or in particular that you're looking for right now or any specific um, focus projects you're working on that you need information for? Sure. So uh, I, as long as it, so it relates to LGBT history in DC, Maryland, or Virginia, I think it's open to be a part of our collection. Um, uh, what I would tell you, there are a couple of projects we're working on right now. It's not uh, necessarily sports related, but I think uh, there are some sports connections to it. Um, one is uh, there was a uh, bar here and it was an after hours club here in D.C. Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s uh, called the Clubhouse. And it was an after hours place. It was primarily uh, patronized by the African-American community and uh, to some degree organized because some of the other gay bars were discriminatory against African-Americans. They would require them to show multiple kinds of ID in order to gain entrance into a bar or maybe not admit them at all. But anyways, the clubhouse grew from just a really great place to go dance and have a good time into an incubator uh, for activism, uh, especially related to the AIDS crisis. And a number of the groups and organizations that, uh, uh, that were created to battle the AIDS epidemic uh, originated there. So uh, last year, uh, we uh, started a special project to collect uh, oral histories solely related to the story of the clubhouse. Uh, we collected about 15 of those. And then uh, we had a videographer create uh, some short uh, couple minute long videos, just using clips to tell the story. So that, that's one of the projects we're working on. Um, another project we're working on, it, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, who Cheryl Spector was. Uh, uh, she is uh, deceased, but uh, she was a fixture on the uh, DC gay scene and uh, pretty much at the, at the beginning always had her camera with her and then later always had her video camera with her. And uh, after she passed away, uh, we were gifted with almost a thousand videotapes that she had recorded of 
marches, drag kings, drag queens, rallies, parades, festivals, protests, public meetings. Uh, the list is endless. Uh, and we're in the process of digitizing those because we don't want uh, the original uh, medium to deteriorate. And uh, one of the things we have planned, uh, because there, there is a, a large amount of footage about Pride or related to Pride, is we hope in May to uh, have a YouTube uh, event where for an entire week, we just have, I don't know, 10, 12 hours of various Pride events on a continual play so that people can uh, start getting into the Pride um, mood a little bit early. So um, I, I, those are the two main things that we're working on currently. Uh, we're, also, we're also working on some infrastructure related things. Uh, we're, we're trying to upgrade our, our website and make some improvements that way. But uh, those are the two main history related projects that we're working on. Can our listeners support the Rainbow History Project? Sure. We're, we're always looking for volunteers. I think uh, during the pandemic, uh, it's more complicated. Uh, but I also want to encourage people, there are things people can do from the safety of their own home. Um, we have oral histories uh, that uh, need to be transcribed. Uh, that's something that somebody, we can send them a link to the recording. They can do it from home. Uh, also, if somebody's interested in taking oral histories, uh, that can obviously be done through our Zoom account. So, you, you, again, you, you don't have to uh, put yourself in a situation where you may not feel comfortable. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have our uh, big uh, Community Pioneers Award ceremony coming up in the fall. Uh, we'll be looking for volunteers to help with that. Uh, at this point, we expect that's going to be a virtual event. But nonetheless, there will be uh, uh, work that needs to be done, uh, fundraising or preparing for the event, creating the promotional materials, all those sorts of things. If anyone's interested in getting involved, uh, just send an email to the info at rainbowhistory.org email address, and I'd be glad to provide you with any information. All right. That sounds terrific. And I hope that somebody uh, out there hears this and takes you up on that. Um, <laughs> So I want to thank you again for joining us. This has been really interesting and fun. Before I let you go, I just want to give you one more chance to remind everybody what your website is. And I don't know if you guys have any social media handles or anything like that that you want people to know. Sure. The, the, the majority of our online uh, footprint is through our website, which is rainbowhistory, all one word, dot org. Um, and if somebody wants to reach us, if they uh, send an email to info at rainbowhistory.org, that's the best way to do it. Uh, we also have a Facebook page as well under Rainbow History Project if, if somebody wanted to uh, connect with that. Okay, terrific. Well, thanks again for joining us, Rob. This has been fun. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening.
Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.